And now, coming to you live from the Gresham Room, high above the Coot Street Motel 6, it's Jonathan Stroud and Garrett K. Wolf with special guest Neil Clark on the Coot Street Podcast! And welcome to the podcast. If you're still here after the introduction, Neil, that means you're an official podcast veteran. <laughs> um, but we wanted to talk about something. I was rereading this as well. Uh, we were starting off with an editorial you wrote, I guess, last October for the ninth anniversary of Clark's World, which yeah. impresses me a lot. I mean, that makes you a veteran already. Uh, so congratulations on your nine and nine and a third anniversary now, by, I suppose. <laughs> Thank you. We tend to, to joke that in Internet years, we're dinosaurs at this point. <laughs> Absolutely. <So. laughs> but you're talking about the editorial you were talk, that Gary's referring to was talking uh-huh. about, I guess, what it takes to be a viable short fiction magazine in the 21st century. Is that basically what, what you're addressing? Uh, yes and no. It, it was it was sort of me being uh, uh, a little cranky and looking at the state of the market and, and, and noticing some trends I wasn't uh, quite appreciating and... Uh, uh, noticing that I think we are generating more editors than we are readers at this point. Uh, so there's lots of new publications springing up, and uh, which is a good thing, but we don't seem to be drawing in new readers uh, to the same rate, and that can be detrimental to the health of the field, um, especially if you're talking about um, uh, magazines that can sustain themselves. And I, I think something that I started after that editorial w- was to try and shift the discussion from um, the survival of short fiction magazines to, to, to a period of them thriving. Um, because we're ge- generally hearing a lot of discussion, oh, we've got to save this or save that. But that's the wrong approach. Well, I- well you mentioned... You mentioned Realms of Fantasy, for example, and we could probably use Weird Tales as another example where for sentimental reasons people keep resurrecting magazines that simply aren't viable in any of their resurrected forms. Uh, yeah, and, and uh, it's, it's a problem that, that you see continuing with some of the magazines that start off Kickstarter. Uh, and there's nothing wrong with that, but you should have a, a plan to, to continue on in, in your second and third year without having to go back. Um, because... I don't know, I'm, I'm kind of old-fashioned in my belief that Kickstarter is supposed to kickstart your project and, and um, that you have some responsibility to the people who supported you uh-huh. to continue it on your own. Well, we I mean, don't kickstart every issue. Yes, or year or whatever. Or which what? which, which yeah. we, we've seen done and makes you, you know, question viability. I guess yes. a question that I would, I would put to you is, first of all, do you think we need the short fiction market at all? course why well i think i i'm i'm sort of okay let me toss it back what what do you call the short fiction market i mean Mag- i want to know how big an umbrella you're, you're magazines using. anthologies short story collections uh all the digital variations thereof places mm-hmm. where short stories okay. are published uh, i can't imagine a world with no short fiction I'm a short fiction junkie, uh, so so yeah, we we I believe we need it. There's other people who only read novels and they couldn't care less. Um, but I think it's an important part of the field. Um, there's still a lot of experimentation going on there. Um, there's new authors entering the field that way, 
I mean, it's not as exclusive as it once was where you worked your way into novels, but uh, there's still a lot of people who are make, getting their start in, in short fiction, and there's still a few people who are almost exclusively short. Do you think that um, the market as you look around it today is anything like it was in the past? I mean, I guess what I'm, what I'm looking at is... Uh, is is short fiction as influential to science fiction and fantasy as it once was? I think so. That's a tough question. But it's really a hard thing to prove or disprove. Um, it's just one of those things where I, I look at the field and, uh, and I can see sort of uh, it being a piece of the puzzle that, that uh, that's keeping it moving forward. Um, you know, there's a, a lot of um, uh, themes and, and things where you might see they, they get dabbled with in the short form and eventually move their way into novels or or um, or they're used to enhance the long form where, where you know you see that happening with tour.com a lot where they where some of their novels come out and then the author releases a novella set in that universe or a short story so I think it, it, it's it's becoming more integrated um, than it once was um, uh, it might. I suppose if you go back further to the time where we had more serializations, it, that was probably more the case then. I, I, I realize it's an odd kind of a I question. Know, I, to, sorry, what did you say, Gary? I, I, I was going to say the uh, kind of the other half of the discussion. Jonathan and I are both reading um, uh, the new book, the new book by Mike Ashley, his fourth volume in the history of the science fiction magazine, whose title is either science fiction rebels or science fiction rebels. I don't know whether that's a noun or a verb <laughs> in the title. Um, but one of the things that's interesting is that uh, he makes the argument that in the 80s, at least, in the early 80s, uh, that there were some enormous markets for science fiction. There was Omni, for example. And uh, he makes a point that before Neuromancer came out, uh, Burning Chrome and Johnny Mnemonic had been in a magazine that might have had, had a readership of over 2 million it had a paid circulation of 750,000 and to some extent uh, paved the way for the later success of, of Neuromancer and Cyberpunk and that sort of thing. And I think one of the points that, uh, that I keep thinking about is that uh, between Omni and possibly oh, some of the men's magazines, apart from the fact that uh, Analog and Asimov's were much more successful then, I don't think there's a single venue alive today that can create a moment the way uh, a market like Omni could in the mid '80s. Not in the English language, no. No. Well, okay, you, you say that, but this actually speaks to one of the things that crosses my mind. And I was reading the same book, and actually, when I think about your own piece and other things I've seen you talk about, Neil, and that is, there isn't really very reliable information about a lot of this stuff. I mean, you know, you, Gary, you cite the mid 1980s circulation or 1990s circulation of Omni, which was very high, and apparently got as high as 900 odd thousand copies per, you know, per month. Even though there's also mm. reader sur surveys apparently around Omni that suggest that fewer than three percent of the people who read Omni read the fiction, so right. you know, th th yeah. So, so, so there's th mm -hmm. that is a real question. But we ha we actually have no idea really what Tor.com say gets as a readership or a readership for any individual piece. And I'm sure. I mean, if I looked around, you know, the online world, for example, and I look at Clark's World, I look at Lightspeed, I look at um, Tor.com itself, I look wherever else. I don't really know what any one of those uh, venues has as a reliable readership. I don't know what their peaks are. I mean, 
let's ask. I mean, Neil, for you, what would be a peak for for yeah. a story that, that that you publish that to that, you know in terms of readers? Oh. As best you can a peak, a peak would be uh, Peter Watts' The Things. It's it's probably our most successful. Last time I checked, it had crossed 400,000 readers. Um, mm. And, you know, that's unusual. Um, it, it's a story that um, keeps making its way back. Uh, on you know Since it's online, it, it gets linked to by the oddest of people um, who have huge readerships and suddenly we'll see a surge of, you know, 10,000 people just reading it in a, in a few hours. Um, well, it gets someone linked like, to uh, movie fans, too. Which Yeah. Well, you, um, I mean, I know that it's been linked to by um, Will Wheaton and Simon Pegg, and, and these people have huge audiences. Um, and yeah. it was very clear. Um, we noticed something was going on when, when they mentioned it uh, and backtracked it to them. Uh, so yeah, there's that. That is one of the the things about the online fiction market is, is that a story can sort of have a longer life. Uh, uh, it, it can keep making its uh, making comebacks, and um, and you can see that with, with print stories, but um, never to the same magnitude, never to the same uh, spontaneity type situation. Um, uh, so so that is a, a change in sort of uh, the way things are. I tend to, when we report our numbers to Locus, use a very conservative number um, that's uh, on average readership for the entire issue. And the majority of them are reading the fiction. Um, we've got some people that, that mm. uh, lean one way or the other. But the number I don't include in that total, because I can't tell you what the overlap is, is the people who listen to the audio versions of those stories. Mm. And that adds another 10,000 to the to the pile. But some of those... Oh. Are probably reading online, and some of those um, are are just audio people. So it's it's really hard to say. Um, we've made attempts to survey our community, and we know we're not touching enough to be statistically meaningful. Yeah. I, I, okay, thirty years ago, you could look around and say that there were a big three magazines. You could look at Analog, Asimov's, and Fantasy and Science Fiction. You could look at their editors. You could see how they appear to materially, even at that stage, influence the field. I mean, John Campbell, Gardner, a few other people are famous for appearing to influence the, people, the field, the kind of fiction that was being written, the kind of fiction that was being published. Um, do you feel that still happens today? Do you think any one publication, any one editor is in a position where they can actually materially influence the field? Well, I think there's a, a few publications that can still influence the field. It's it's uh, it's certainly no longer just the big three. There there's you know maybe five or six, um, but you look at the awards ballots, you see the same publications. We've both just turned in year's best anthologies, and you know uh, at least in my case, Asimov's had a very strong year uh, in in representation in that. Um, so yeah, they, yeah, and and they're one of the original three, so they're still having an influence. I think Analog is the one that slipped of the, th and and FNSF is a little lower as well. But um, I, I think these things come and go. Uh, you know, if you look back over the history of uh, of all of these magazines, they had their peaks and valleys. It was never um, always on, and um, uh, mm. but. Um, but I think uh, you know, one of the right now I think we do we do have, like I said, the, those few editors um, that are at the top of of the field that are um, 
attracting or or finding the best stories. That's what I was going to ask. Um, that was, this, this is my one point for the entire podcast. Um, and it has to do with um, with something you said a few minutes ago, Neil, that maybe we're, there are more editors than there are maybe writers, readers. I don't know wh- where you're going with that. But the one thing that you uh, elided in, in your editorial last October was that question of what editors actually have to sell. And what editors have to sell is essentially their own taste, um, you know, is, is their own judgment. And that was very clear uh, during the years that Gardner was editing Asimov's that it, it changed the direction of the magazine. Um, the question I'm asking is not whether there is enough creative fiction out there to, 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 to populate any number of markets. There probably is. The question about whether the quality gets lower as you have too many markets is one thing. My question is, where, did the, where does the authority of these editors come from? If you look at... Um, the history of the, of the influential editors now. If you look at Jonathan's history, look at Ellen Datlow's history, you can see people who have, I'm sounding like a cranky old guy now, people who paid their dues. You saw how they learned to do what they did. Why do so many people think they have that skill now? <laughs> uh, oh, it, it, it's, editors all have ego. Uh, that's, it, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and sometimes they don't know they have it, um, but but they do. You know, it it takes a certain amount of ego to say I I know what what stories should be published. And in my case, it's I know what I like, and my readership is based on people who like the same things I like. Um, so mm-hmm. I'm not trying to uh, to uh, drive the magazine towards a, a specific community's taste. Uh, it's this is what I like. And, uh, you know, I, I think a lot of the editors are like that. Doesn't a lot of it come down to a simple thing of you you read along, you form your own taste, and then you think, I'll have a go. And if the rest of the world agrees that you're any good at it, your publication or your editorial products thrive, and that's how you learn that you're actually any good at it, the rest of the world agrees. And if they don't, you weren't any good at it kind of thing. Yeah, yeah, I, I think that that that's a a good way of looking at it. I think uh, one of the other editorials I did last year was was trying to figure out why I picked the stories I do, hmm. because uh-huh. people were you know people always try to find um, uh, some sort of magic formula to to okay they like stories like X Y and Z, um, and I discovered that I was picking stories that. Um, uh, by people who were influenced by writers that were not the ones that influenced my taste. So, so I had this theory, and I put out a survey, and, and sure enough, the numbers came back, sort of supporting that, because I'm looking for for something different. So I don't want I don't want the same old thing. So the ones that influenced me, while I love that those stories, I don't want to read it again. Um, I have uh-huh. a very difficult. I can't reread. Um, books, uh, you know, I could, some with short stories a little different, but I can't reread a novel um, because knowing how it ends ruins it for me. Um, and and uh, yeah, so spoilers are a big problem for me. On top of it, oh dear. Well, <laughs> <laughs> so so that sort of shapes how I how you know my taste in short fiction goes. Is I'm I'm looking for what you know something a little different, something that that um, uh, surprises me in some way. Uh, and I think there's a, a, a number of people that, that feel similarly based on 
um, our readership. Do you think editors today spend the same amount of time thinking about the profile and nature of the publication they're editing as editors in the past appear to have done? I mean, if you look at the editing of analog, it's obviously very consistent. If you look at the profile of FNSF, it's very consistent. A lot of newer publications which are finding their way, perhaps, because they are newer, don't necessarily seem to have formed a really clear idea of who they are yet as much. And I think that's an important thing in a marketplace. Yes. Now, I agree. I think it took us about three years to, to really find our footing and, and, and realize you know, what things worked um, as a cohesive unit for us. Um, but there, there's, uh, you know, other people are, are quicker to, to realize uh, or to, to come to terms with, with their market's identity. But I think the older magazines sort of get pigeonholed by that identity sometimes, and people will only submit stories they think fit that that, uh, that model. Well, I guess that, that's the other question. I mean, one of the downsides of longevity is that people know you and your reputation, you know, ev evolves a little bit. But, you know, one of the things I, I see again or hear again, again and again and again about analog is I'm completely flummoxed as to why this particular group of hard science fiction writers never appeared in analog. And if you go back to the 80s, there's a group somebody would name. If you, if you go back, say, five years ago, how come Cory Doctorow and Charlie Strauss and whoever John Scalzi aren't appearing regularly in analog? They would appear to be classic analog writers in the newer sort of vein. And yet they don't. For, for, I mean, for a variety of mechanical reasons with m money, ge geography, and whatever else. But do you think it's possible for an analog to reinvent itself? Do you think it's possible for an FNSF to change how we see it in the modern era? Yes. I, th I think you saw that, too, with uh, Anne v Vandermeer's uh, version of Weird Tales. Yeah. yeah. They, they really yeah. reinvented themselves, did a, an amazing job, and, and sadly the magazine was sold and then editors changed and it went back to its old ways. But I, I really think that it, they they succeeded in in redeveloping uh, an existing magazine. In that case, is there a fault line in the modern short fiction market caused by there being no real editorial training out there? Now, what I mean is, when I listen to Gardner, or when I listen to Datlow, or when I listen to uh, even a, a Sean McCarthy or, or, or a Betsy Mitchell talk about their time working in the magazines. Now they, they start off at an entry-level position. They have a publisher. They have a, an editor-in-chief they work with. They learn a batch of skills about how a magazine, in this case, is, is built. And that gives you a model on how to run it as a business, how to be profitable, how to deal with printing, distribution, the editorial, the acquisition of art, all this kind of stuff. Now, because there are so many fairly easy points of entry into the publishing game you don't necessarily learn those things and so you end up with a whole group of publications that don't necessarily have a solid footing yeah that that happens a lot and uh, but the one thing i, I will say is that uh, a lot of uh, a lot of editors talk to each other sure. and share share all of the of the stories particularly the the magazines um over the last eight nine years i've probably had well over a hundred people speak to me to get some advice on things to do when they're they're starting a magazine 
and some of them listen, some of them don't. And I don't, I, I always make sure to tell people that, you know, you sort of have to follow your instinct. If, it, mm-hmm. if what I'm saying doesn't sound right to you, then it's probably not right for you. Or, um, though quite often the first thing I ask them is why. Um, <laughs> and and the, the second thing I ask them is uh, how much can you afford to lose? Um, and and now uh, that that game's changed a little with with the crowdfunding startups um, because it's not their money um, they're losing um, uh, anymore. It's it's um, uh, uh, a bunch of other people's, is, is um, and, and they don't perceive it as losing. Yeah. I mean that's that's no. you know it's a totally different mindset in that model. Well, she is. I have a- it- is it your opinion that that's a bad thing, though, Neil? And it concerns me about it being a bad thing, the availability of Kickstarter funding. And I'll tell you why. I think the great gift of Kickstarter, of simpler means of production, more accessible means of production, is that all kinds of people can be involved, right? And I think that it allows all kinds of new publications to, thr- to, to, to be made available, magazines, anthologies, whatever else. But what it doesn't necessarily do is ever connect those products to readers. And I think it creates strange expectations in the, com- the science fiction community. I mean, so if I, if I go out, let's say I went out and I kickstarted a major new anthology of Australian science fiction. And people said, I'm interested in Australian science fiction. That's great. This is going to change everything. Everybody's excited. And out it comes. But I don't really know much about distributing books. I print enough for my Kickstarter backers, and I sell another 120 copies. Then everybody says to me, well, that must have had an enormous influence, but really there's only been 468 people who read it. You know, is it not having an... I mean, isn't that a problem, that, that we're not connecting these publications to people who could read them? And the people who are doing it don't seem to have the experience to, to, to help do that. I don't, I, I don't blame uh, crowdfunding for that. I, I, I blame the, the people who are running those campaigns because Kickstarter is a tool. It can be used effectively. Um, I've used it on, on uh, two projects, and I intend to use it again. Um, we used it to launch our Chinese translation program for Clark's World. And right in that campaign, I said, one year, startup costs, and we will fund it afterwards. And if we don't, it's over. Um, and I think that's it, that's sort of mindset needs to happen with the recurring projects more often. Um, but with an anthology, um, essentially, you know, people are, are uh, want to see these projects happen. They happen. And um, like any other independently published book, it might be seen by 10, 400, 4,000. Um, it's all a matter of, of uh, you know, uh, marketing and, and other aspects of the business. Uh, and some of that is, is luck. Um, you know, so, uh, you know, yes, it, I think those projects would be better served if, if people coming into them had more experience. And I think you're going to start seeing that over time. Because um, uh, right now it's still, you know, it, crowdfunding's been around for, for several years, but it's, it's not reached the point where um, uh, there's still people who are finding it uh, new and cool and, and, and exciting to, to do that. After a while, I, I suspect you're going to see something um, of a, a fatigue setting exactly where people are tired. Yeah. Yeah. Where, where people get tired of, of um, the same thing over and over and not and, and these projects not becoming viable businesses. Um, and they start to become a little bit more picky mm-hmm. uh, about that. 
the catch to that is that there's such a huge crowd of people involved in these projects that you can go from one year to the next, lose half of them, um, and more people fall in. So whether or not they're having a long-term impact, it's, it's yet to be see, seen. I don't think right now that anybody is – that we're really bringing in um, many new readers to the field um, through any avenue, uh, crowdfunding, traditional publication, or um, – or, or any small press or whatever. Uh, I mean, I've seen um, kickstarted projects that do better than some small press anthologies, and I've seen uh, some big publishers completely tank an anthology. Okay. So it's it's uh, mm -hmm. it's hard to blame anybody but the the actual people involved in the project. Yeah, I mean, I, I will say I sort of feel a little bit like we eat our own young over and over again. That you know, there is a finite number of readers. Uh, I'm encouraged when you say you know, 400,000 people may have read an, a, a Peter Watts story, because 400,000 people read, reading Peter Watts is is encouraging. It suggests that there's a, a market that no, it may take something else to consistently tap into, but there's an interest there you can at least get a hold of. And I realize there's been an entire shift in media culture over the last 40 years as well. So that the prominence of reading is, has changed, and we have to accept that. But if we're not bringing in fresh readers, ultimately the field dies. And I'm personally greatly concerned that, that we do that. What I'm also concerned about is how we talk about all of this amongst ourselves. I mean, the reason I ask about some of these things is I see people looking at... Uh, ephemeral projects, one-shot projects, uh, anthologies, whatever else, as a symptom of increasing diversity in the field. But what I'm not sure is whether those things actually have the impact people think they have. You know, if they actually communicate to as many people, if they actually are as much of a harbinger of change as we hope. Because, we'll say with, with getting more people of colour involved in the field, you know, we're not yet anywhere near a reasonable representation level. And surely some of that is you need consistency of markets that welcome people of color. Mm. You, you, know, you need things to be successful. I think what happens, people look at, say, one or two anthologies. They see a Mothership Africa. They see a Stories for Chip. They see whatever else, and they think, well, that's it. And then they get frustrated because they look back and they go, hang on, we had those things, and somehow things don't seem to have changed. A recommended reading list, a Hugo ballot comes out. It's not demographically balanced um, surely something's wrong. But is it, to turn it into a question, that, that may be a, a better thing, is it that the process will end up being you need a whole bunch of these effervescent kind of projects to exist, something more lasting forms, and then the influence comes? Is it that we're expecting this influence process to be faster because we live in the media culture we do than it actually is? Well, I, I'll... I'll throw it back to my, my uh, Chinese translation project. When we launched a Kickstarter, I had questions from people, why don't you just do an anthology? And in my mind, that's a gimmick. To do a single special issue or a single book around a certain theme is much more gimmicky and marketing. If you're trying to have an impact and change things, you need to make it part of who you are. So we made it part of every issue. Um, and so I think more of those things need to start happening in the field. Um, and I'm not saying that we should be picking stories just because somebody is X, Y, or Z. 
I'm saying that we need to make sure that we're, we're providing avenues so that uh, X, Y, and Z uh, know, one, they're welcome, and, and two, that, that we, you know, uh, that we're quite open to, to publishing their stories. Um, and I think each market has, has uh, developed reputations uh, sometimes fairly, sometimes unfairly, uh, based on uh, who they've published in the past uh, on that. And, you know, that's sort of setting the tone. So it's up to the editors if they want if if they believe in, in uh, diversity, um, you know, they, they really need to make it part of everything they do uh, rather guess, than... Yeah. Uh, Gary? Uh, it, uh, going back to, uh, again, going a little bit to Mike Ashley's book. There were special issues of magazines back in the 80s and 90s, international issues, issues and translation issues, only women-only issues and so forth and so on. And and that's clearly something which is very popular today with, uh, well, blank destroy science fiction. Um, but the sense that doing one-off shots like that solves the problem, it seems to me to be self Delusional. It seems to me that you're you're acknowledging an issue, but doing one thing to take care of it, doing doing one issue of a magazine in 1994 that has all women writers in it, doesn't do anything for the next hundred issues of a hundred different magazines that don't have very many women or or people of color or people writing in languages other than English. And so so I wonder if some of that is um, is, is is simply making ourselves feel good. It's simply self satisfying by doing special projects rather than by changing the actual system that's been the problem all along. Mm-hmm. No, I, I, I think there's probably some of that in there as well. But, you know, and, and there's nothing, nothing wrong with uh, trying to, to, to benefit part of the community at the same time. And sometimes these things do ra- raise awareness. I mean, it is a one-shot. Um, and sometimes you'll find an amazing story or a new author in one of these things, and hopefully you can get them... To, to continue on in the field in, in, in some way in, in, uh, uh, and become part of the, the larger community on a more uh, regular basis. And some uh, of that happens. I, I, yeah, I mean, but it, you're, you're right, though. It, 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 it doesn't seem to be happening. Um, and um, it, mm-hmm. it's somewhat disappointing or fairly disappointing. But then how much of that is that you need to have enough time to grow a creative population to find the generations of writers who believe they can be published, uh, find the generations of writers, get them connected so they are publishing, and take that time, that it's not something that's fixed in five years or ten years. I mean, uh, I can see why the translation program you're doing works. Not the least, mm. you have an enormous body of science fiction to put to pull on to bring in immediately if i were to go out and say produce and i've thought about doing this or supporting this publishing a magazine that published science fiction only by women right mm-hmm. there are many many women to, to who who you know potentially would be interested yes they're getting published elsewhere but they may find that this is something they would be interested in being part of and they would contribute and you could go out and you could solicit it but do you need to give time for other communities to grow enough to connect enough to to make this to make it work i mean i just think that i'm a little worried that when we use science fiction or short the short science fiction market as a bellwether for for diversity in the field which is which to some degree we are at the moment i think we're looking at saying mm-hmm. this is more diverse 
we're doing better, we can see this, we're doing better, which is true, and it's great. We still haven't given the time to actually percolate through, and we're trying to treat it as though it's an endpoint, when actually we're still in the early, early stages of achieving some kind of diversity. That in 15 years' time, if, if it's worked towards, or 20 years' time, you'll see a genuinely diverse field. Uh, yeah, I, I think it's it is. There's no quick fix. There, you know, it's going to take some time to to uh, to uh, build the uh, uh, the uh, the appropriate population uh, to to yeah, look at how many different markets there are right now, um, and the number of stories per month that are being published, and the number of stories per month that are being written um, in 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 whatever uh, demographics you want to break it out to, and it's not clear that there there's um, a, a, enough of a body uh, of, of people there yet. And we've got to keep encouraging that. Um, how is sometimes that's beyond, uh, you know, uh, beyond our reach. Uh, uh, how do we get uh, uh, another a community to even start reading science, science fiction if they're, if they're, if they're not represented in the reading pool? They don't uh, see themselves in, in, in the field. Right, so it's a, it's one of those chicken and the egg problems at times, and it, it's it's very difficult. Yeah. Are there too many markets? I think so. I, I think from a business perspective, okay. as a reader, I think it's a it's a great time to be a reader. There's plenty to choose from. Almost uh, in in some ways, uh, uh, you know, trying to read for years best, it was a little overwhelming that there were so many, um, uh, but the I, I think that um, there's also a lot of specialty magazines now that are really more off uh, 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 where they've got a, a, a niche and, and uh, a smaller audience that, you know, those sort of things, um, they, they grow um, special interests that, and pull them in. It's tough, though. Well, one of the things you'd mentioned again in your editorial was the danger, the risk, the worry that some people have that uh, so many venues, how do you maintain a minimum level of quality with so many venues for publication? And I think that's always um, a question, but it's a question that cuts two ways. Uh, and to, to use an example from academia, which is another area of publishing I'm involved with, there are, there are people in the field who... Um, edit, I don't know, online academic zines, and they will go to conferences and they will present a panel on what they call publishing opportunities. And that, that frightens me because publishing opportunities suggests to me that these journals exist in order to get people, in some cases, entire presses exist, in order to allow people to get published who couldn't get published through normal venues. In other words, this is a place to get your name in print. It's not quite a vanity press, but it's not a lot better. And the question then becomes, are some of these venues, fiction or, or nonfiction, are these venues really meant to serve the reader or are they meant to serve ambitious young writers who can't get into normal venues? And the other I, way I of asking the question... <laughs> go ahead. Go ahead. <laughs> no, no, I, I, I think... I, 
I I think I've heard more of of that as as rumor. I know there was one person online claiming that short fiction is only read by writers, and I promptly went in and pulled out the the data I have and. And, uh-huh. you know, if if only, if the only people reading our magazine were the people who were submitting stories, we'd have a considerably smaller readership. Um, so there there is a, an audience out there beyond uh, writers. But there's this pervasive thought that that uh, uh, or uh, that that is the case, which with science fiction, short fiction, predominantly among people who don't them, they themselves read short fiction. Uh, well, yeah. Because they just don't get how anyone would want to. I, but at the same time, I, I hear it more spoken in, in literary circles. You know, oh, this literary magazine, is, it doesn't have a subscriber base big enough to, to pay for itself, so we're going to charge per submission, and, and, uh, you know, uh, and that's their business model. So you usually hear it um, on that side of the fence. I haven't heard it said much in science fiction, though. Should well, it actually, sh- locally. Locus itself has run against a, a website which we don't need to mention that actually was basically saying we will, you know, for for X amount of dollars, we will review your book. And and there there are, you know, pay per re- review websites out there. Uh, there aren't, there, there may be paid for, for pay your own fiction uh, things out there. But before I get further into that, I wanted to answer my own question because the other side of that question... <laughs> I'm gonna I'm gonna refute what I just said. The other side of the question is: Does this lower the quality of fiction, or does it broaden the base of available fiction? In other words, does it really help widen the scope of the field, uh, invite new kinds of writers, new kinds of voices? Um, part of this part of this does have to do with uh, going back to Mike Ashley's book again. When when Gardner Dozois took over Asimov's back in ni- January of 1986. Um, he changed the. Uh, some people at the time apparently thought he was lowering his standards because he was publishing all kinds of stories that weren't by any traditional notion science fiction that were all over the map. Uh, that he was celebrating writers. So to some extent, if you have more venues, doesn't that give more chances for an unusual writer? Uh, a Rachel Swirsky, or a few years ago, or a Kelly Link. To, to find venues for publication that they might not have found with more traditional venues being the exclusive outlets. Of course. I mean, yeah, the, the more venues, it, it, the more stories that are going to get out there and the, and the wider range. I think, though, that if there's a market for those, those more unusual stories, they begin to find their way into the mainstream. Uh, mm-hmm. How they get there, and, and keep in mind, we, we've been talking largely about magazines and 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 a little bit about anthologies. But you have the entire mm-hmm. sphere of self-published authors out there as well. Um, right. So, so you not only have um, uh, uh, you know the the bigger magazines, the smaller magazines, the the uh, the anthologies. You also have the, this pool that doesn't want anything to do with the magazines or has tried or continues and says, mm-hmm. this story is good enough from my standpoint. I'm going to prove everyone wrong and sell it myself. Some of them do okay with that. Some of them don't. I think the same thing happens with the magazines. So it's, it's really, um, like I said, the, uh, the whole idea of a magazine as, as representative of the taste of the editor and people using that as, as sort of what they go by. Um, uh, as a map to their yeah. own taste. Some people do not want to have to dig um, to find 
that unusual gem. And those are the people that are going to largely stick to the, the books and magazines. If you're somebody who's going to be looking for the unusual yeah. piece, you're going to search for the oddball markets and, and, and probably read a lot of self-published stuff as well. So there's different types of readers out there. And, and uh, um, right. It, I, I don't know that the audience for either group is, is, is growing strikingly. It just doesn't look like it from the numbers. But um, it, it does, uh, fr- from my standpoint of, of one of the arguments I made was, you know, that quality argument what, uh, in my editorial where, where it seems like mm-hmm. the number of available slots for stories isn't growing at the same rate as uh, the number of uh, really good stories. And I was sort of tossing that back to my own slush pile experience because we get about a thousand stories a month uh, to, wow. for, for five slots of original fiction in each issue. And sometimes it can be really tough to, to get to that five. Uh, there's a lot of, of uh, uh, zombie stories, which I can <laughs> chop out. Oh, yeah. <laughs> And, and then uh, you know, and and then you've got the varying levels of quality, as I see it. Uh, you know, another editor is going to kind of go through that same pile and pick out, you know, maybe some of the same stories, but a different set. Um, so, from my perspective, as our slush p- pile has grown from three hundred to five hundred to seven hundred to a thousand. I have not seen a corresponding increase in quality uh, in, in the number of stories I'd like to publish, uh, which is very disturbing and sort of feeds that sort of undertone of, of the quality argument in my piece. The quality argument is, is a pretty scary one in a way because you don't want to sit there and say um, only this particular group of writers are capable of writing great fiction that somebody wants to publish. That sounds mm-hmm. pretty elitist. And I, I can understand an argument that would, that would come back and say, well, are you cha- challenging your own views on what is excellent enough when you look at those thousand? Because, I mean, there's a reasonable shot that if six different people read those thousand stories, they'd come up with a different top five. Mm-hmm. You know? Now, I realize uh-huh. th- this is slightly irrelevant because you're making your decision for your magazine. That's what you're there for. But you would have hoped that what would have happened is that if you've now if you've tripled the number of submissions you're getting, you triple the number of, of publishable uh, stories you'd receive. Is, is it up to the editor to, to question their own assumptions more, to to push around it, or is it that you think there's fundamentally just less top quality stories in existence and this is why we end up publishing the same people over and over again because they're the ones who can produce it because you know. Or, that's something that any magazine does. All the magazines in the history of the field have always ended up publishing this, a, a cluster of writers over and over again. Yeah, and, and they all they grow their own stable, and and, and uh, yeah, that is one thing you know that we sort of worry about is we we look back and say, okay, we, we're publishing a lot of the same authors this month. Um, let let's see what we can do about that for next month, um, and, and, and try and balance that out a bit. Because you, know, you want to have a stable, you want to have some reliable pool, because you never know how things are going to go from month to month. Uh, but at, at the same time, uh, I, I look to uh, one point in time, uh, we had a submission guideline that was 4,000 words, no more than that. 
and we rose it to 8,000 words. And the mm -hmm. difference in quality was stunning. And one of the reasons why was um, I was constantly being told by people that their sweet spot was 5,000 and they were editing down to four um, to make our, our guidelines. And the edited down stories were s far superior. And in, in fact, that's uh -huh. one of the, the, the top criticisms I have uh, of a lot of the stories that come in is they're, they're, they're padded. They're, there's a lot of extra stuff in it that can be cut or, 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 uh, or, or knocked down. And I think it's a good exercise for writers to actually try and do some of that pruning on their own before they submit it. Um, it tightens it up. And, and in the short form, you really want that. Um, so, you know, it's, it's, there, there's some of that um, playing into it. And, uh, you know, we're, we're seeing a number of, of, uh, of odd trends. Like, uh, you know, one month we started seeing submissions from, from a class of students that were told they had to submit their story as part oh, of their homework. <laughs> um, so, you know, it, and, and that's great to get them that experience. But at the same time, you could tell from the cover letters, they weren't serious about this because <laughs> they were telling you right off the bat, I had to do this um, and apologizing. Uh, <laughs> and, so Let me, let me ask a question. Um, oh, oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. But at the sa same time, um, you know, you're, I'm seeing a lot more... Um, sloppy mistakes you know not everybody's perfect you know spelling yeah you're going to make mistakes and stuff like that but mm. it, it's very clear that you know the whole um you know remember to read the guidelines thing is, is becoming more and more of a problem or at least mm. proofread your own fiction before you send it in spell check well, i mean <laughs> my, my question my question but no I, I, this is this is sounding frighteningly like the papers i get in my college classes where you think Either turn autocorrect on or turn it off, but do something to make sure that these words are what you meant. Um, my question to both of you as editors, though, is uh, when, when you have this, you, you have writers whose names you recognize, you have styles, there must be a sense that, that you've had at some point of maybe having missed the big one. Somebody at some point in science fiction editing history bought the first Cordwainer Smith story. Somebody bought the first David Marisek story. Somebody bought the first Kelly Link story. And somebody else didn't. Do you oh, yeah. ever have the sense that you just there, let one uh, slip by? Oh, I know we have. Um, <laughs> there's, a story that's, there's a story that's won awards that we rejected, and it ended up at the right place for that story. That's how I, uh, I, I look at it. It's like that story went on to... to, to uh, to win awards and be recognized as, you know, and it's, it was a good story. It just wasn't a Clark's world story. So, and, and, huh. uh, you know, and I like it. It just, it didn't fit. So uh -huh. the, uh, you know, I think that's one of the things that, uh, uh, we try to get across to authors sometimes is that, you know, this story was really good and I'm not buying it. Um, and, <laughs> and I want to see the next one. <laughs> Because you, you've got something here, and I know you, you're quite capable of being in the pages of this magazine. So I'm not really worried about missing um, a single story or a single author, because very rarely write only one. Um, and, yeah. you know, okay, so, and that person that has, has uh, uh, that, that I, I passed on that award-winning story, we've published other stories by this author. So um, I eventually got something I liked. <laughs> So I'm happy I've, with that. 
Jonathan? I've had similar experiences. I mean, I've had stories I've, I've passed on that have done well. I've been story, had stories that I've ha- been forced to pass on, which have done... <laughs> I think I know which one you're talking extraordinarily about. Extraordinarily <laughs> well, I would say. And which, you know, actually, I've got to say, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm happy to say this. I was put, I had, I was the, original, the editor that uh, The Things by Peter Watts was written for. Uh-huh. And I had to pass on it for reasons beyond my control. And I think it's the best thing that happened to the story. Because mm. it got 400,000 readers as opposed to sitting in an anthology where it might have got 1,200. And it won the Hugo Award and all that kind of stuff. So that sometimes actually the best thing is that you don't, you don't, you're not the person who publishes it. The thing that is, is the great um, frustration for me, and might be for you, I don't know, Neil, <coughs> is when you... You read the story that you're sure is the one that is going to set the field on fire. And you're waiting for the the tsunami of response from the field because this is it. This is the one. It's going to win every award. It's going to change everybody. And they're all going to look at you like you're John Campbell or Celie Goldsmith and that you're the greatest editor who ever lived. And there's nothing. No response at all. (laughs) Just just whispering wind on a prairie. You ever heard that? Oh yeah, yeah. There, there are stories that I absolutely love that you could hear the crickets. Um, yeah, the re- re- it wasn't that they were badly reviewed or well. Re- it's just like they just sailed under the radar. Um, and uh, you know, they're still my favorites. Uh, and I make sure to tell the author that <laughs> because uh, I, I, I want to see more from them. But there, you know, sometimes there's a story that just for some reason doesn't click with the broader community. How do you think you give a story the chance to catch fire, though, these days? Well, I think the things might be <laughs> might be a good example of that. If it took a while to get four hundred thousand downloads. Well, like I said, that that was a, a series of spikes that's been spanning since. Uh, God, what year was that? Two thousand ten. Yeah. So, so I mean, over six years, it's it's had a bit of a roller coaster ride. Um, and, and when it came, first came out, it, it, um, it was probably a week or two before it started getting a lot of notice. And these things take a while to build momentum sometimes. Um, it it if it happens to land on the right person's desk or in the right person's Twitter feed and they see it, um, you know, that can happen faster. Um, it's something you can't manufacture. Uh, it's, it's the whole, uh, how do you make something go viral? You you can't. Uh, it, it's really hard to to uh, uh, manufacture that. You have to either be extremely devious or um, extremely lucky. We both devote far far too much of our lives to reading short fiction for best of the year anthologies. Now that you're part of that community, welcome. And <laughs> I know your 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 book's coming out in May. How valuable do you think the bests of the year are? in highlighting stories and giving them a, a, cha- a second life, particularly in this world where there are so many venues and then so many bests of the year? Well, I, I think there's, there's um, many bests of the year. There's also many magazines. It's all, again, the, the editor's taste, and they're going to gravitate towards different things. We're all going to have overlap with one another, um, some mm-hmm. that are clearly the best. We're all going to miss something that ends up on the Hugo ballot. <laughs> or on the nebula ballot or something you know so it, we're we're hardly mm-hmm. uh 
infallible. Uh, but I, I think it, 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 it adds to the field as sort of a, in two, in two ways. Um, you know, there's a lot of people who don't have time to read widely and um, appreciate somebody else doing that for them and, and showing them more than just one magazine's best stories. Or, um, and others like it from an historical perspective. They collect the whole series and, and you know, they can say, you know, oh, you know, 2008 was a really great year for science fiction and, and hold up that book as an example of why. So I think it's a, a, a multiple different ways. And well, as to the impact of my own, we'll see whether or not it sells. So <laughs> I don't have a track record there yet. So we, we lost a chunk of you in there too. So basically you're saying that Neil yeah. described you as a, re uh, as a reader and that the role of the best of the year is if you read them all, it will give you some kind of overview of the year at large? Yes, that's what I'm saying. I'm trying to get a better connection now. Yeah, D does that feel right to you, Neil? Th uh, I, I think there's a lot of people like that. Yes. Yeah, I, I certainly was that was that reader when I was growing up in in, in, in Perth. I bought the Don Walheim, I bought the Desoirs, I bought the Terry Cars, and they did give you a feeling of. Um, what was going on in the field and also rather than finding those overlaps annoying and i mean as as someone who's editing a year's best i i do try and avoid to some degree overlaps with other editors but as a reader what i found rather than as that i'd somehow lost out commercially i felt that it reinforced those were the most important stories of the year you know so if i saw i don't know press enter by john varley showing up in four different years best i thought that's got to be one of the stories of the year and I think that's a useful mechanism. I think it's a useful thing to sort out, particularly today. I mean, we've sort of talked around this whole issue of how many markets there are, how many venues there are. And it certainly, I think, helps with something that synopsizes those and brings them together. Because people aren't going to read Mothership Zeta and read Clark's World and read Lightspeed and read Lady Churchill's and read um, whatever else, Apex and Gigantosaurus and all these other places. So that's a good thing. And I'm glad those places exist. Well, for some readers, including myself, a year's best anthology will send you to a Clark's World or an Apex, to some place that if you begin to see stories showing up from a particular venue, you begin to check out that venue more than you might have. Okay, so sure. uh, that That's definitely. Um, it, what, for, for years, when we first started, I would track um, percentage of stories in the Locust reading list, in the year's best anthologies, and I started noticing... Uh, yeah, so I had graphed out print magazines, anthologies, and collections, and online magazines, and, and noticed um, over the course of, I guess, uh, a, a, a few years between 2006 and, and, and 2010, where, where, where the, the, uh, the line shifted uh, for, for all of those things. And online magazines started getting stronger representation, um, and that definitely had an impact on their readerships. Yeah. You, could see, you could see that sort of dynamic happening in the field. The readerships were growing um, quite sharply. And it's, it's, now it's a little more uh, level, uh, I think. How important do you think it is to the profile of a story in 2016 that it appear in a venue that the reader doesn't have to pay for? Yeah, well, it, it certainly helps them. Um, but, uh, you know, really good stories still manage to make their way uh, onto awards ballots and, and, and other things because of the year's best, because of recommended reading lists, because the authors have websites and post the story themselves. Um, yeah, so there's a lot of different ways for it to get out there. 
and uh, you know, I think that the online magazines do uh, have a, a slight advantage in, in promoting their authors, uh, but it's 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 not something that's causing them to dominate the field. I, I, well, I, I guess the reason I think about it, there's, there's a couple of reasons. One is I feel like you need to generate buzz, if you like, as best you can for stories, for your anthology, for whatever else. And if you're not on social media, if you're not active, then you're less likely to do it because that's where the conversation seems to take place mostly these days, in, on, on Facebook, on Twitter, wherever else. So if you're closed off from that, you, you, know, you, you end up not get, having the same connection that you might otherwise. What I'm thinking about at the moment, just to sort of clarify, is I'm look, I've been thinking about you know, what stories are important in 2015 that we're going to be talking about in 2016, the writers that have had the most impact. Now, to me, the two writers that were the most interesting in 2015 were probably Kelly Robson and um, Sam Miller. You know, there, were, there were a couple others, but they stood out. I think they'll end up on the awards ballots for a variety of reasons. Not the least because the stories they wrote were excellent. But I look at something like, say, Greg Egan's The 4,800, which appeared in Asimov's uh-huh. in December. Now, it's not going to be reprinted anywhere between now and the Hugo ballots coming out and the Nebula ballot coming out. Having it come out once and, in a sense, disappear, doesn't that really undercut its chances? Well, I think it's also that it came out in December will factor into that. Yeah, that's a problem. Why? Wouldn't that actually be an well, advantage? Because there's no, been no. less of a chance for buzz. But on the other hand, wouldn't it be, in a sense, an advantage? Because, I mean, it's only got to you know, basically be around until March. Doesn't that mean it's fresher in everybody's mind? Sometimes. Um, I think I, I'm, I'm not uh, – I'm kind of critical about short fiction reviews because they don't have an impact. They yeah. don't drive sales. They don't drive readership. Um, and, and, and there are some isolated incidents that, that do, um, at which the ones that people tend to wave the big flags around and go, but no, 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 you're wrong. Um, but they are the minority. Um, as you said, Twitter and, and, and sometimes Facebook, they make a big difference. So if people who are reading that said, hey, hey, you've really got to track down this story. Sure. Um, it, it, it's, that's one thing. It'll, it'll get some notice. But I think that quite often um, books and magazines that come out towards the end of the year um, uh, have a harder time getting noticed. Um, because by that, particularly December. December, everybody's crazy busy December. Um, yeah. And uh, it, it is, there's lots of distractions. You might not get to that issue of a magazine. Or, or um, if you're a subscriber, you're going you're gonna to get it anyway. But if you're a casual reader, you probably will end up skipping that issue. Um, so I think there's some definite disadvantages there. Uh, and since it wasn't uh, available to years best, it didn't get noticed in any of our releases which right. some people will, uh, do use to, to say, hey, I should be checking this story or that story. Um, so I, I, I do think it's, it's, it's sad that this story could p- quite possibly be missed. Um, it's one of, one of the ones I'll be nominating, uh, certainly. And uh, I'll, I'll just add, I agree with you on the two authors. I think Kelly and, and Sam had an amazing year. And, and this being Kelly's first year is even more stunning. It is. Um, let me ask you this as well. I mean, 
you've been tracking quite closely, obviously, the performance of the stories you've published in Clark's World over the last nine years, right? Mm-hmm. And I assume that you have mapped the impact of awards, nominations, all that kind of thing, and the readerships of those stories afterwards. In your experience, does being nominated for a major award, and by major in this instance, I mean Hugo's, Nebula's, World Fantasies, Tip Trees, these kind of things, uh, does it make an, an ultimate difference to the number of readers a story gets at Clark's World? Sometimes, um, uh, you know, a story like um, uh, uh, Lily Yu's uh, Cartographer Wasps and the Anarchist Bees um, uh-huh. definitely saw a benefit from that. And then it got reprinted in Neil Gaiman's uh, in a Neil Gaiman anthology. And and, uh, you know, it, she won the uh, Campbell Award that year, but the story didn't win. Um, so. I don't have data on winning stories in the Yugos yet because <laughs> we haven't had one. We've had several uh-huh. nominees, but we haven't won. We've had the Nebulas. We've ha- had wins, and I, I've noticed small increases from um, uh, and, and uh, individual nominations for different awards ha- have an impact. Um, I can say that the uh, semi-prosing Yugo awards that we won definitely had an impact. Um, they 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 got our name out there and, and some recognition um, and helped us grow those, those uh, that particularly that first one generated a lot of notice for us. Um, so yeah, the, the awards, they, they do have an impact. I think, um, I, I think that the amount of impact they have is often overestimated. Um, I wouldn't say that they've had a, a, uh, on on short fiction, I wouldn't say they have a uh, a big financial impact. Mm-hmm. Um, there's probably a bit of a long tail to it that makes it hard to to map. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. Do you think it's possible for a writer in 2016 to make a living from short fiction? If they're extremely prolific. <laughs> but but if there it, are, are there enough paying markets? Once upon a time, there were. Um. Yeah, I, I, I would... I would I, is this a fair question too. for okay. science fiction and fantasy writers? <laughs> yeah, it is a fair question, I think. I mean, once upon a time it used to happen. And even, I, I mean, I look back five years. Five years ago, maybe six years ago, uh, Robert Reed would have come as close to anybody, I would think, as doing this. And he was producing 12, 14, 16 new stories a year. Yep. And I think he's, you know, he's he lives, now struggling he to find... He in the middle mo- of nowhere. His house costs nothing. Yes, and, and, and that was one of the points I was getting at. I live in New Jersey. There's no way a New Jersey-based writer is, is going to make a living off the short fiction. Um, <laughs> right, exactly. And, 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 you know, if you look back in, in history, they say, oh, well, you know, these authors made their living off of short stories. But they were also selling stuff to other markets under pseudonyms, mm. um, not just short fiction to science fiction and fantasy. Some were selling... Um, uh, trashy novels somewhere, uh, yeah. and I'm not. When I say trashy novels, I don't mean romance novels, um, <laughs> as some people automatically assume. Um, no, the, you mean romance the, uh, with the closed-off novels. I know. <laughs> yeah. So, so that, and yeah, there was a, a, a lot of other things they were doing. You have some people who are who do, do nonfiction, uh, which pays better. Um, I mean, it's really hard to make an argument to, to, to say, hey, you should go into a career as a short fiction writer uh, when, when, well, the, you, uh, you, you, when the qualifying uh, rate for success matches every one of those things you've mentioned. Yeah? Yeah. 
Oh, yeah. What is it? Gary? What is what? Your example. <laughs> Hello, am I gone? You're, we're beginning <laughs> to drop in and out. I'm going to like one or two more points and we might begin to think wind up. I'm going to say, I've asked whether I think um, you can make an impact in the field, and I actually have an example of uh, 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 where that's happened here. I think 12th Planet Press have made a huge impact by being focused and coordinated in their message about what they do. They've, they've fundamentally changed science fiction published in Australia, True. right? And I think they've got attention overseas by being very consistent. Do you think enough people think about the message they put out there with their magazine? And by that, or their publication, by that I mean, if, let's say you come into the field and you want to do more than just be involved. You've got an idea. You want to do something. Do you think enough people are relentless enough? Because it seems to me that if you are relentless enough, if you push hard enough, if you focus on, on, on what you want enough, it, it really can happen. You really can make a difference. Um. Yeah, I, I just like the whole concept of of, of message as a uh, as a model. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I, I think that it, it's okay to have uh, have some thoughts and try and and shape your publication in a certain way. But at the same time, I think you've got to be um, conscious of the fact that that you really shouldn't club people. Uh, <laughs> and there's been some stories that you know that I've published that. Mm. You know, there's one in particular I'm thinking of that we cut the entire last scene because it was like, you've made your point, now let's club him with it. Um, and, uh-huh. and, you know, so I, I dislike that. I think 12 Planets done a, an amazing job. I've, I've uh, uh, read several of their projects and, and they're really, uh, they've carved out a nice little marketplace for them. And I think a magazine can do that too. Um, uh, and, and some... Some, it's really hard to say that, um, like like something like cross genres, which is now you know, closed, they had carved out their own little area, um, and you know I think it depends on the ecosystem you're in as well. I think Twelfth Planet does well because of, of part, partially because of where it is, um, uh, and and some of the the uh, and of course the the people involved in it uh, are, are very. Um, smart uh, and on top of it, but I think when, uh, the um, the issue for for some of the magazines is that there is so much competition that if you specialize too much, you're going to have people who don't want to hear that message, um, and and it can it can work for or against you. It's really it's a very delicate balance, and if you want to change things, you sort of have to. Well, well, Not well. just preach to the choir. I, I think the, the, one of the corollary risks, because I mean, I think there are reasons why it works for the 12th planet, really good reasons. But one of the corollary risks as well is that if you specialize too much, you then struggle to find the writers to work for you. Mm-hmm. Uh, because even if they exist generally, there's an awful lot of markets that they can write for, and they're not going to choose just to write for yours. So you end up perhaps struggling to get the quality of content necessary as you work. Uh, that said, I mean, I, I believe strongly that if you create consistent market, a consistent market, you can, you can materially change the field. I mean, I don't want to sound egotistical about it, but I mean, I think if you want to be John W. Campbell, you can't be John W. Campbell these days. But I think yeah. you can still have impact. Um, I, I tend to think we are moving out of an era of having a big three or a big five. I think we're moving out of an era where a single editor can change the field and be looked back on as having done so. But I still think you can impact. 
this isn't the time to ask the question, but I might as well. So, I want to start a magazine, Neil. Right? <laughs> what should I do? Uh, seek counseling uh, <laughs> as a starting. Uh, no, I mean, re- really, um, <laughs> yeah. it, uh, part, of, part of it's, the biggest mistake I think people make is just not knowing. They, they say, I, I want to start a magazine, but they don't actually understand the, the business behind it and how they're going to, to fund it, how they're, what, what avenues are open to them. You've got a lot of people who come in going, oh, I can make this off of advertising. I can make this off of subscriptions. Those are all very hard things to acquire. Um, so I tend to tell people, start small and grow into what you want to be. Um, we have the luxury of, of uh, well, again, for another question is print or right. digital, uh, you know, and, and, you know, there's some people that still want to start print and, you know, okay, how are you going to get distributed, distribute, ah, distribution. Um, and at least here in, in, in the States, uh, that distribution system is really broken, uh, badly broken, uh, uh due to, series of mergers and acquisitions and it's gotten down to the point where it it's going to be difficult to launch a print magazine in science fiction and fantasy uh, uh, and i don't know anybody who's successfully done it in quite some time um, but then again you know the online markets aren't exactly uh, rolling in money either um, uh, we're probably doing the best of the lot at this point from what I can tell in terms of actual revenue coming in. Um, but I want to launch a music that makes it's, it's be wealthy. Really, no, you, you want it to at least cover its costs, though, um, and a lot of them don't. Right. Uh, you know, at least on, on paper, the, you know, the number of, of readers and how much they can be getting. Um, you, it's really tough right now. You have to be in Amazon uh, as a subscription, I think. If you want to go by the subscription revenue model, because most of the other places do not have the audience, um, you could do direct sales. Um, Patreon's a great thing; you can sell direct through through there, um, and it's it's something that's benefited us a great deal um, over the years. Um, uh, let's see. Yeah. So, and and you know, of course, I said, how much do you want to lose? You're going to have to say, you know. Right. Well, if the money's coming out of your pocket, <laughs> how Where much do you can I lose, or how much am I willing to spend, is probably the better question these days. Um, and I, I think one of the problems with the uh, third-party funding is that they often try to they say, "Well, I want to do this magazine that's on par with Asimov's. I want to have this number of stories. I want this art. I want this." And it's just unrealistic these days. Is part of the problem with 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 a question? that I'm treating it as a question, not an answer. And what I mean by that is I'm asking uh, how can I publish my magazine without necessarily ever having really considered whether publishing a magazine is the solution to what I want to achieve. Yeah. I mean, um, yeah, that that would be another question. As a, what, what are you going to get out of a magazine that you won't get out of um, doing an anthology or I mean what what is your real reason for going down this path what about this model says this is the right one for you um, and you know if you're certain that that is then you know okay well then how do you make that work um, and uh, you know knowing what your goals and objectives are for not just the first year but the first three years you know and try and try and plan out uh, you know how how it's going to evolve what it'll what triggers that 
uh, evolution uh, and and what um, what sources of revenue you can get to to fund that and I tell people don't stick to just one don't say don't say uh, oh I'll just do subscriptions or I'll just don't donations do everything because at any given time one of those can stumble um, and the more sources um, of revenue a publication has the more stable it'll be do I also need to realize that my hobby that I talked about when I was going to play around and create a, a new magazine actually is a structured business even if it's a small one and that it has to have structure and planning and administrative sides of it and all that kind of thing. Uh, yeah, well, there, there's a lot more work than selecting the stories. I mean, there's uh, you know, the whole business aspect of it is, is uh, uh, a little more complicated than, than a lot of people think. And that's quite often you'll see a lot of these magazines that go under is because they underestimated the administrative side of it. Yeah. Um, you know the hidden costs and and all of that. I think uh, it, it's a, a a great field to be in if you, if you have the the patience and temperament and, and some talent for it. Um, but there's a you know it's a lot of work. Uh, well, certainly it's my own experience that if you want someone to think you're a great editor, they're more likely to think you're a great editor if you pay on time and if you process you know you, you process contracts and uh checks properly than if you actually edit their stories sensitively and are uh, in <laughs> touch with what they're trying to try to achieve you know, and, and, and 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 respond to them quickly yes, yes. all um, that kind of thing yes yeah. a, a yes all, all, all those little time. things but that's that's the writers the readers have a different set of criteria and, then, so, and and quite often they won't even hear about um, oh yeah, he he paid his check on time, as opposed to he paid it two weeks late. You know, quite seriously though, the other side of this then is how when I publish my new magazine, do I talk to my audience? How how do I find what they want? How do I know? It's is is, is it just looking at website statistics because I published a web mag uh, uh, you know, a web based magazine? Is it just looking that you know the November issue sold better than any other issues when I sent them out into stores, or is it something else? I think if you try to chase your audience, you're going to put yourself in a hole. Um, you know, it, it's. Uh, I, I don't uh, mean chase your audience. I mean, how do you know that they are responding to what you have done? Readership. Yeah. Numbers. <laughs> it's it, you know just that's. I'm a, a bit of a data junkie, so I collect all sorts of st statistics and and data behind the scenes of how the magazine is doing. We do an annual readers poll where we get some idea of, a, and it's the readers poll never goes the way I think it's going to go. Mm -hmm. It's it's really funny in that regard. Is that sometimes the the stories that get the biggest readership are not in the top three, um, and it's it's unusual like that sometimes. But uh, yeah, it it's. Um, How how you uh, how you sell it to people? Because I mean, you're you're you've, you're coming at an advantage that a lot of people wouldn't normally have. You have an established name, and an audience. People who buy your anthologies um, sort of have a sense of what you like. Well, they should have a sense of what you like by now, uh, in general. Uh, so you have that weight behind you. When I started. People just said, you're crazy, we don't know who you are. Uh, uh, online stories are, are uh, what, what, how'd they phrase it? Um, 
Uh, that's where all the newbie authors go and the pirates. Uh, so this 2006 things have changed yeah. a lot since then. Yeah. Um, but I was getting you know authors saying no on those grounds instead of no, we don't know who you are. It was no, the the, the entire medium is bad. Um, so it, it you know, you already have uh, authors that you you've worked with a reputation. So that puts you one up on your average uh, person who's just starting a magazine with a, a little bit of, 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 of a background where they've been online or they've written. Um, I, I think uh, we're still part of that minority of, of editors that don't write. So, <laughs> <laughs> Fortunately, let, let there not be too many more yeah. of those. <laughs> well, yeah. look, I think we've lost Gary, you know. And that might be a, ch- a, a yeah, good yeah, reason like, to, to wind up. We're we're over our hour anyway, and you know, okay, it might might be worth sort of closing up. But but maybe we we will, you know, continue the conversation perhaps later in the year because I'd love to talk to you about, what, you know, artistically. In fact, let's talk a minute. How, how do you feel that the field is going artistically at the moment? When you look around, do you feel optimistic? Do you think twenty sixteen is going to be a quote unquote good year? I, I actually yeah, finished writing my my introduction to to the year's best, and I rated twenty fifteen as a B minus year. Yeah, <laughs> um, uh, <laughs> but you're doing that just I, for science fiction, though. I as think well. it's too early to say. <laughs> yeah, I think it's too early to say what twenty sixteen will be like. Um, but there's already some really good stories starting off the year. So, um, and. Uh, 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 no, no anthologies yet that I've that I've seen. No, no, I haven't seen any coming yet. Yeah. So, um, and and that was one of the weird things about 2015 was it, the end of 2015 really pulled it out. Yeah. The, I mean, between your your anthology yeah. and and uh, uh, the uh, future visions. Yeah. Um, I think those two ended the year on a on a much better note than we had been for the first half of the year. Yeah. Um, so I I think it's each year is very unique on its own. Mm-hmm. We'll see. Okay. Well, since Gary has gone, we might wind up. Thank you very much for making the time. I really appreciate it. I'm sure Gary really appreciates it too. Um, <laughs> and I hope that maybe we'll see you in Kansas City. Yeah, I'm going to try and be there. Okay. Well, until then, thank you again. And to everybody else, Gary and I, I promise Gary will be back next week and we'll talk to you again. Until then, we remain, now as ever, the Coot Street Podcast. <laughs>